Now let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, and let's just read from verse 1. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And let's open with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear Lord, and Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be together in this place. We thank you for your, your grace and your love and your mercy unto us. And we pray now as we come around your word that you would speak to our hearts through this passage, Lord, that you teach us through it. Lord, give me wisdom and guidance now as I preach. Lord, I pray to be your words, be your thoughts, that, Lord, you would speak to each of our hearts, that you would teach us and instruct us through your word this morning. I pray you bless now. Um, our time in the Word, and may you be honoured and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, we've been going through the book of Acts, and before Christmas, we got to the end of chapter 8. And from chapter 9 and onwards now, the spotlight is firmly upon the Apostle Paul and his ministry. I think every chapter bar 2 is all about Paul from this point onwards. You know, if we didn't know anything else about New Testament history and we'd read up to this point in the book of Acts, you know, Saul would seem to be the most unlikely prospect for salvation, let alone service. Most unlikely prospect for someone to come to the Lord, let alone go on and serve the Lord in such a mighty way. You know, if we were looking for a champion of the faith, Saul would not be the person we'd look at. You know, back in chapter 7, We'd seen Saul standing by, consenting as Stephen was stoned to death. You know, Stephen, by contrast, was someone who we would have thought was destined for leadership, wouldn't we? You know, you would think Stephen, he's headed towards being a great leader in the faith before his death. Now, he was this great man. It says in chapter 6, verse 5, that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Complete contrast with Saul to this point in time. You know, when Stephen was stoned to death, the church must have felt it. It must have rocked the church there at Jerusalem. It must have seemed like a great loss to the testimony of Christ. You know, praise God, he knew what he was doing, didn't he? You know, although we we at the time, and, and, you know, reading to that point in Acts, and indeed the disciples at this time couldn't see what God was doing, God had a plan, God had a purpose behind it all. Now, he'd taken Stephen home to glory, but he was about to raise up someone in his place. Someone to serve and to take the church forward, the the gospel ministry forward. God's plan included the most unlikely man of all. Now, God is about to take this great persecutor of the church and turn him into a great champion of the faith. Now, God takes this one who hates the church, this one who hates Christ, hates everyone who follows Christ and gloriously changes him. You know, Saul's conversion, his salvation is such an awesome truth, isn't it? 
such an awesome reality that God can take even the most vile of sinners and change them and use them to his glory. You know, the account before us highlights God's love, grace and mercy to each and every sinner. And in the chapter before us, Saul experiences four meetings that together transform his life. We're only going to look at the first of these meetings this morning, and it's the most important of these meetings. Saul met Christ on the road to Damascus. Saul met Christ on the road to Damascus. Firstly, this morning we see the purpose of the journey, the purpose of the journey. Verse 1, again, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. You know, the chapter begins by, if you like, setting the scene for us, giving us a little bit of background as to why Saul is on his way to Damascus. Why has he left Jerusalem and now on the road to Damascus? And we read at verse 1 there, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. You know, immediately what we see is that nothing's changed with Saul. You know, the last time we saw him was at the beginning of chapter 8. And what did we see him doing? Making havoc of the church at Jerusalem. And before that, in chapter 7, we saw him standing by Stephen, his stone to death. And as chapter 9 begins, the writer Luke says, And Saul yet breathing out threatening the slaughter. Nothing has changed in Saul to this point in time, from the last time we saw him. He's still full of hatred, still full of bitterness towards the Lord and his church. The word yet here is emphatic in the Greek. And it indicates to us that up until this point in time, his blind rage against the disciples of the Lord has burned as fiercely as ever. The point Luke is trying to make is that Saul's heart has not been softened at all. Okay? In all the things he's witnessed, in all the things he's seen, um, you know, all the people dying for the faith, nothing has softened this man's heart. He is still hard as ever to the truth. You know, Saul had been there when Stephen was stoned to death. And so he had seen Stephen's face shine with the glory of the Lord. Remember that at the end of chapter 7 there? The Stephen, Stephen is kneeling before the Lord and he sees uh, heaven open and he sees God and he sees in the right hand the Lord Jesus Christ. His face shone with a reflection of the glory of God. Saul was there. He saw that happen and nothing changed. It didn't affect him one bit. It didn't alter his hard attitude. His heart is still as hard as ever. And the words here, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, indicate to us just how deep his hatred of the Lord really was. You see, the words translated breathing out here is an expression of deep, agitating emotion which causes one to breathe rapidly or violently. The point is, you know, when you get agitated and when you get upset, you start to breathe heavily, don't you? Okay, you start to get agitated and your breath starts to race. That's what he's expressing here. He's saying that, you know, that Saul here is so full of violent anger that his breath is racing. OK, 
Okay, that's how angry he is towards the church. And this violent anger within Saul results in threatenings and slaughter. He's so full of anger that he violently threatens all that he can find who believe in the Lord. He threatens their lives. He threatens to slaughter them, to kill them. And as we saw when we looked at the start of chapter 8, that's exactly what he was doing. He was putting men and women to death. He was taking them to prison, getting them tried, and getting them executed for the faith. You know, Saul was rejoicing in this. Rejoicing in seeing them condemned. Rejoicing in seeing them put to death. You know, this rage against the believers had already led him to make havoc of the church at Jerusalem. Just go back to chapter 8. Verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing, uh, hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they were scattered abroad, went everywhere, preaching the word. In chapter 8, we see that he made havoc of the church at Jerusalem. He caused, caused such a problem there, such a, a turmoil for the saints that the church had been scattered. The believers had fled to other cities. They fled from this persecution. But you know, Saul was not content with causing havoc in Jerusalem. Now, that wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough that he caused problems in Jerusalem and that the church is scattered. It's not as if Saul sat back and said, yep, job done. My city's empty. My city's now as I want it to be. Saul was not content. Saul is so enraged by his passion against the church, against Christ, that he now pursues after believers to other cities. He follows them, seeking to bring them back to Jerusalem in chains, bound. In chapter 26 and verse 11, Paul himself says this, he says, And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. And so he goes to all these other cities, strange cities, so it's not even just limited to the cities of the Jews. He's going to other cities as well and pulling men and women back to face the courts. And, you know, this expanded persecution is made possible because he has the backing of the high priest. Okay, that's what it says here in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues. So he has letters giving him the authority to do this, giving him the authority to arrest them and bring them back to face trial in Jerusalem. And in particular here in chapter 9, his focus is on the city of Damascus. Now, Damascus is a city that's approximately 200 kilometers to the northeast of Jerusalem. It's right up past the top of the Sea of Galilee. It's right up there. It's a long way from Jerusalem. Now, this is the city that in the Old Testament was the capital of Syria. Okay, this is a long way for, the, for this man Saul to go in search of believers. According to what I read this week, it would have been at least a six-day journey for Saul. At least. Possibly even longer. So the point is that this is not just a local city down the road. He's got his eyes set on a city that is a long way away from Jerusalem. 
You see, this should highlight to you and I just how strong his passion is against the Lord, that he is willing to go this far to find believers and bring them back to face the courts. Now, really what Saul is trying to do is he wants to put an end to Christianity. That's really what he's endeavouring to do, to stamp it out before it goes any further. You know, it's on this journey to this city of Damascus, as he is nearing Damascus, that Saul now has an experience which changes his life forever. That's the second point this morning. We see the light from heaven, the light from heaven. Verse 3, it says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. It's all that as he almost makes it to the city of Damascus, he's getting near to the end of his journey. There shines round about him a light from heaven. He's suddenly surrounded by this bright light. He's blinded by this light. In chapter 26 of Acts, the Apostle Paul describes this light as being brighter than the noonday sun. Just turn over there, chapter 26. Chapter 26 and verse 12, it says, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. Now, Paul says that this light was above the brightness of the sun. It outshone the sun, the noonday sun. The point is, this is an extremely bright light that surrounds Saul at this time. The, words, the word translated, translated sorry, shined round about him here in verse 3. It's one Greek word, shined round about. This Greek word is only found here and in Acts 22, verse 6, where we read, Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. This is the only two times this word is used. And it's both in reference to this light from heaven around the apostle Paul or Saul at this time. And literally what this Greek word means is it means flashed around. Flashed around. And so this light is said to flash all around him. In classical Greek, the word is used to speak about the flash of lightning. Okay, that's how they use this word. And so we get the sense that this light here is like the flash of lightning in its brilliance. Now, when a flash of lightning is real close, it is really bright, isn't it? It's extremely bright, okay? That's the idea here. The brilliance of this light is like a flash of lightning, and it's continuous. It's continually flashing all around him. It's an incredible experience that Saul is going through right here. This light that shines around him at noonday, brighter than the sun, and that blinds him. It causes him to, to fall down. Now, this is a heavenly brightness. It was a manifestation of the presence and power of God. Much like what we saw in Luke chapter 2 leading up to Christmas with the shepherds, okay? They were confronted by the angel and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Much like that, this was the glory of the Lord shining around Saul. You know, also here we see that the source of this light is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The source of this this light, this glory, is Christ. Although it's not said here in the, the verses we've read, 
We know from other passages that Saul at this time sees the Lord in the light. Yeah, verse 27 of the same chapter, we read this. It says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and how he'd spoken to him. Now he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas, when he comes to Jerusalem and he declares to the apostles, he says that Saul has seen the Lord in the way. Also, if we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1 says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? And turn also, also over to chapter 15 of First Corinthians, chapter 15 and verse 8. It says, And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Okay, again, Paul, he's saying that he saw the Lord. And so we've got that Paul himself declaring, at least in two passages, that he saw the Lord. You've got Barnabas declaring that Saul saw the Lord. So the point is, this is much more than just a bright light from heaven. This is the glory of the Lord emanating from the eternal Son of God. He's seeing Christ stand before him in all of his glory. His glory is radiating around Saul. Now, is it any wonder that we read in verse 4 that Saul fell flat on his face to the earth at this sight? Shouldn't surprise us, should it? You know, that he falls flat upon his face. You know, this is what it took to finally get Saul's attention. You know, you think about everything before this, he'd seen Stephen He'd stoned to death. He'd seen Stephen's face radiate with the glory of the Lord. But it takes this meeting with Christ on the road to Damascus to finally get him to fall flat on his face, to finally break this man, to break through to him, to get his attention. You know, one commentator made the point that this no doubt was an answer to prayer for the believers. You know, the believers at Damascus, they knew Saul was on his way. They knew he was coming. Just read with me verse 13. It says, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Ananias, he knew Saul was coming and he knew what he'd come to do. He knew he had authority to bring them back in chains to Jerusalem. The believers at Damascus knew that he was on his way. And so no doubt they'd been on their knees. We would have been on our knees, wouldn't we? In prayer. No doubt they'd been on their knees praying for the Lord to intervene, for the Lord to deliver them. Now the Lord at this time hears the prayer of his saints. He hears also the prayer of Stephen. Remember Stephen's prayer as he was stoned to death. Chapter 7, verse 60. Chapter 7, verse 60, it says, And he kneeled down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. When he fell, said this, he fell asleep. Remember Stephen, he prayed for the Lord not to lay this sin to the charge, to forgive them. He wanted those who stoned him death had a part in it to experience the forgiveness of God. And here now as the Lord meets Saul on the way, God is answering Stephen's prayer. 
He's answering the prayer of the saints as Christ meets with Saul and halts him in his tracks. Now, beloved, we must never underestimate the power of prayer. The power of prayer. You know, God hears our prayers for the unsaved. And he is at work. Even though sometimes we can't see him at work, he is at work. Now, just like God heard the prayers of other saints who were praying for us before we got saved. I mean, you think about it. Every single one of us, before we got saved, someone was praying for us. Whether it was family or friends, someone was praying for our salvation. Now, I read a commentator this week who made a comment. He said, you know, it's unlikely that anyone ever gets saved without someone first praying for them. So it's a good point, isn't it? Someone is praying for them before they come to the Lord. That's exactly the same here with Saul, isn't it? So the point is, you know, God hears our prayers. You know, it may just be that those ones we're praying for, like Saul, need the Lord to shock them into attention. So don't stop praying. Keep praying. The Lord is working in their hearts. Thirdly, now we see the voice from heaven, the voice from heaven. In verse 4 it says, And he fell down, sorry, and he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Now, as Saul now falls down flat upon his face to the earth, he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, in verse 7, we're told that the men who are traveling with him heard a voice, but saw no man. It says, and, when, uh, and the men journeying, sorry, and the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. So it says they heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. But from the account of Acts chapter 22, it seems that they didn't understand the words that were spoken. Let's turn over to Acts 22 and verse 9. Acts 22 and verse 9, it says, And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. So it seems to be conflicting, doesn't it? One passage says they heard a voice, the other one says they didn't hear a voice. And so it seems to indicate that although they heard the sound of the voice, they didn't understand what was being said. Now perhaps they heard a thunderous voice, but they heard the sound of the voice. I mean, it's Christ speaking here. But they didn't understand. They didn't hear what was said. The other point of view is that maybe they heard Saul speaking. And that's what it's referring to in verse 9. But they didn't hear a response to Saul. They didn't hear anyone talking back to him. But either way, the point is that this message is for Saul and Saul alone. Regardless of which way we want to interpret it, the point is, the men with him didn't get the message. It wasn't for them. It was for Saul. And the words spoken to him are, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? You know, can you imagine Saul's shock at that moment? Can you imagine his shock to hear these words? He believed he was doing God's will, didn't he? He believed he was going to Damascus to serve the Lord, to eradicate these false teachers. 
to eradicate these ones who were following a false messiah. That's what he believed. He believed he was serving God. But now a voice from heaven says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You know, I can imagine that in that point of time, Saul is extremely afraid. At wondering what's going to happen next. You know, verse 5, you know, Saul manages a response. He says, who art thou, Lord? Who art thou, Lord? Now, I'm sure as he asked this question, he already had an inkling as to what the answer was going to be. I'm sure he already started to realize what was taking place. And the Lord responds to Saul by saying, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The response is clear, isn't it? There's no ambiguity here. There's no, it's not hidden, and he has to search for the meaning. The Lord says, I am Jesus. It's me, the one you persecute. The one talking to him is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The very one that Saul has been actively working against is standing before him alive you know the phrase here it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks is a proverb and it speaks about the fruitlessness or the, of rebelling against lawful authority the fruitfulness the, the you know there's no point in rebelling against lawful authority what it pictures for us is an ox being urged to pull the plow with an ox goad okay an ox goad is a, apparently a long uh, pole with a sharp piece of metal on the end and they would poke at the ox's legs to help it to keep moving, to keep going. And if the ox was stubborn and the ox kicked out and refused to move forward, the ox would hurt itself on the ox goat. Okay? It would injure itself. It would be hard for it to kick against the pricks. Okay? The pricks there is the ox goat. And so hence, the proverb means that it's pointless to rebel against lawful authority. It's pointless. You'll only end up, end up, sorry, end up injuring yourself. Yeah, one commentator wrote it like this. He said, essentially, Saul is the ox and Christ is the farmer. Saul is dumb and stubborn, yet valuable and potentially extremely useful to the master's service. Jesus is goading Saul in the right direction. And the goading causes Saul pain. But instead of submitting to Jesus, Saul is kicking against the goad and only increasing his pain. You see, up until this point, Saul is kicking against the pricks, isn't he? Up until this point, he's kicking against the ox goad. He's ignoring the Lord, ignoring the master. And effectively, what Christ is saying to Saul here is he's saying, Saul, it's pointless to rebel against me stop fighting it Saul listen and obey see Christ had a plan for Saul if you would only stop fighting and let God lead let God direct his path you see the time had come for Saul to stop fighting God stop rebelling against God and to submit to the master's plan so fourthly here we see now the act of surrender the act of surrender verse 6 it says and he trembling and astonished said lord what wilt thou have me to do and the lord said unto him arise and go into the city 
and it shall be told thee what thou must do. You know, verse 6 here begins, we immediately see that this encounter has had an effect upon Saul, hasn't it? It's had an effect upon him. We read that he is trembling and astonished. You know, this is the same man who struck fear into the hearts of all believers. The believers were scared of him. Ananias was scared of him, didn't want to go near him. Now, this is, the, this is the man who's going around putting fear into the hearts of others, and yet now we find him trembling before the Lord. See, Saul was pricked to the heart. He was filled with a sense of his sin and guilt before Almighty God. You know, what leaves Saul trembling and astonished here is more than just the light and the voice. What leaves him trembling and astonished is the realization of what it all means. So there are at least two discoveries that Saul makes that leave him trembling and astonished. The first is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is alive. Is there any wonder that he's astonished here? Now, this is the one that he was going around saying he's dead, he's buried, he's not alive. The disciples were going around teaching that Christ is alive, but Saul was going around denouncing them. Saul was saying they're liars. Stephen had declared that Christ was alive, and what did Saul do? He put him to death. He had a part in his stoning. But now standing before him, speaking to him, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of this truth leaves him trembling and astonished. You see, if Christ is alive, then Saul has to change his whole way of thinking, doesn't he? Saul has to change everything he believes. Everything he believes is wrong. Everything he's been doing is wrong. If Christ is alive, then everything he has taught is a lie. You see, he must repent, he must admit he is wrong, which is a difficult thing for a Pharisee to do, isn't it? He's a Pharisee, and he has to admit now that he was wrong. The second reality that dawns upon him is that he is a lost sinner in danger of judgment. He's a lost sinner in danger of judgment. Christ said to him, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It dawns on Saul that he has been working against Almighty God. He's on the wrong side. He's working with the enemy. He's not working with God. He's working against God. He thought he was serving. He thought he was honoring God with his actions. But in reality, who was he serving? He was serving the devil. He was serving Satan. He's persecuting his Messiah. That's what, he, that's what Christ says. He says, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul now realizes, I've been persecuting the Messiah, the one who came to save me. Can you imagine how painful that must have been for Saul, a devout Jew, to realize? It must have hit him like a ton of bricks to realize that he had been persecuting his Messiah. See, Saul realized that he was in danger of judgment. He deserved judgment for what he had done. He deserved to be struck down right then and there. He deserved hell, and Saul realizes this. He understands he's a guilty sinner before a holy God. Now, suddenly, all of his righteousness, all of his works, 
seem like filthy rags to Saul, don't they? Go to Philippians chapter 3. Just read what Paul writes later on in Philippians 3 and verse 4. Now, starting verse 3, it says, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. You know, Saul sums it up, Paul, after his conversion, sums it up well, doesn't he? The change in attitude. Beforehand, he was living as a Pharisee, singing to keep the law, thinking that was getting him to heaven. But in this moment, as he meets the Lord, and the Lord is alive, the Lord's standing before him, he realizes he's been persecuting the Messiah. Saul sees himself as he really is, a lost sinner on his way to hell. And he sees Christ for who he really is, the Messiah, the Savior. That's now that we read that Saul reacts by humbly calling upon the Lord. In verse 6, we read, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Saul acknowledges Christ here as Lord. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? He surrenders to the Lord Jesus Christ. He now knew that the one he had hated as an imposter was indeed the eternal Son of God, and he acknowledges him as such. The word Lord here means master. That's what Saul is saying. He's saying master. What do you want me to do? I'm your servant, basically. He's surrendering to the Lord, surrendering to the Lord's will for his life. He stops fighting, he stops rebelling, and he humbly submits to the master's will. My beloved Saul in this moment is gloriously saved. In Romans chapter 10, verse, verse 9 it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's exactly what he's believed, isn't it? He's seen the resurrected Lord and he's now confessed with his mouth the Lord Jesus. Saul is believed. Saul is saved. In that moment in time, he's a changed man. He's saved by grace through faith. And Christ responds by saying, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. It's a very brief explanation of what Christ said to him after that. But if we turn over to Acts 26, we're given a little bit more information about what was said. Let's just turn to Acts 26. Verse 16, it says, But rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those th things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, 
to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which is sanctified by faith that is in me. And it gives a bit more of a description of what the Lord says to him in that moment. The Lord reveals basically his plan for Saul's life. You know, the Lord had a special work for Saul to do. This great persecutor of the church was to become a great preacher of the truth. He was to take the gospel message, the wonderful grace of Jesus, unto the Gentiles. That was his commission from the Lord. See, the point is God had a purpose for Saul's life, didn't he? Even when Saul was standing by watching Stephen be stoned to death, God already knew what he was going to do with Saul. God already had a plan for his life. But Saul, first of all, had to meet the Lord and humbly surrender to God's will. He had to surrender the Master's will before God could use him. You know, the conversion of Saul here highlights for you and I the wonderful grace of our Almighty God, doesn't it? Shouldn't make us leave today just praising God for how gracious, how loving, how merciful He is. You know, Saul himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now, Paul himself looked back on his life and he said, I was a vile sinner. I was the chiefest of sinners. Indeed, Saul was a wicked sinner, someone who had committed great atrocities. But beloved, God still loved him. And God gloriously saved him. But not only did God save him, God used him. That's even more miraculous, isn't it? In a sense. That God could take this one who was so against the church, save him by grace and change him and use him so mightily to his glory. Beloved, it ought to remind each of us of God's love and grace towards us. Now, if you're here this morning and you're saved, you've accepted Christ, then you have experienced that same love, that same grace, that same mercy. Beloved, we were like Saul, undeserving sinners, lost and on our way to hell. We may not have committed the same atrocities, but we still deserved hell. And God in His love, God in His grace has saved us. And you know, now that we are saved, God has a plan. God has a purpose for your life. God has a purpose for my life. And the wonderful reality is that no matter what we've done in the past, God can still use us in the present. You see, our past does not mean God can't use us. If we ever wanted an example of that, look at Saul. Our past does not stop us from being used by Almighty God. We simply, like Saul, need to stop rebelling, stop kicking against the pricks, and humbly submit to the Master's will. Like Saul, we need to be willing to say, Lord, what will thou have me to do? You know, I wonder today, have we surrendered to the Master's will? Or are we still kicking against the bricks? Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the conversion of Saul. Lord, you took him and you transformed him into the great apostle Paul. And Lord, we marvel at your love and your grace and your mercy to him.
that, Lord, you would take a sinner like Saul and use him so mightily to your glory. But, Lord, as we look at our own lives, we realize, Lord, we were undeserving of salvation as well. And, Lord, you have saved us gloriously by faith. And, Lord, we pray now that you help each of us, Lord, to submit, like Saul, to your will. And, Lord, may you use each of us mightily to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.